Good morning. We are in a series uh, that we've called, I Am Still Here. And that's not me speaking in 30 minutes when you're like, is he still saying, no, this, that, <laughs> that, uh, those are the words of our Lord to us, that I am with you, I am with you, I am with you, I am still here. And, and he says that throughout the scripture, and uh, in this series, we're following God's people through a, a period of great uncertainty, a period of, of great change, of great shaking. And this story appears in more than just one of the texts of the Old Testament. It appears in the Psalms. It appears in the prophets. It's through the historical books. We're following God's people as they were conquered by Babylon and sent into exile, and then by His grace and His choice returned back to Israel uh, we're following God's people in this tumultuous time from around 600 to 400 B.C. And, and f- during this time, their identity was threatened. We've heard today about our identity rooted in Christ, called out of darkness and into God's kingdom of light. But they are learning again that God is with them to save, even in the darkest time, even in the most challenging periods, God is with them. And I want us to know that. That's my heart through this summer, that that I want us to know who we are in and through Christ Jesus. I long for us to live from that secure foundation that God says, I haven't departed, that I'm with you, even even in your darkest hour, even when uh, there's assault from all sides, I am with you. I am at work to change. And one of the great temptations I mentioned last week, and we see in the scripture and we see in our own lives during times of change, during times of uncertainty, and really in times of exile of all kinds, one of the great temptations is to simply blend in. To lose our set-apartness. To relinquish God's call on our lives and just... Go with what's going on around us. That's one of the great temptations. We saw last week, this is a false home. It's a, it's a false home that we, when we look to this false home or we long for this false home, it ends up being a dead-end path that doesn't lead us toward the Lord but away from the Lord. So to conform to the pattern of the age is to lose the shape of one who follows Jesus Christ. And so today we're looking at the prophet Daniel, who lives and ministers in this very time. And we're we're looking through his example and through the teaching of God's word, how to live in this world without becoming of it, to use Jesus' words. I'm going to read from Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And so if you're able and willing this morning to stand for the reading of God's word, I invite you to stand. The very first chapter of Daniel, beginning with verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. 
And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. And these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and he put them in the treasure house of his God. This is that first deportation we were talking about, 597 B.C. And then the king, this is Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. These were young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter into the king's service. And among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved. He purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked, the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. This is God's word to his people. Thank you, God. And let's pray together because there are hard words that we need to hear when we talk about conformity to this world. And so, Father, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the testimony of the living God, the testimony of the Spirit who has preserved Spoken and preserved this word for uh, your church for all time. Thank you that it's not by our wisdom or our understanding, but we stand on your authority. We stand on your truth. And so help us to form ourselves by your word and not the other way around, God. Help us to shape ourselves by what you say. Give us grace, Lord, to, to, uh, to live as exiles in a way that pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So the pattern of this age, to use Paul's language in Romans 12, the pattern of this age is defined by what is temporary, by what is self-focused or self-centered, by pursuing pleasure and power as an end in itself. John writes, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. This is the pattern of the age. This is worldliness. My way, not God's way. My glory, not God's glory. This is the shape of the age. Of every age, including ours. And as I said, there's supposed to be a distinction between the people of God called out and the people who are blending in with the world. There's intended to be a distinction between the way of the world and the way of God's people. When Jeremiah, as we saw several weeks ago, said in a letter to these same exiles, seek the shalom of Babylon, he was also in the context of his, of his book and his letter saying, but don't become like Babylon. Jesus said in John 17, we are not of the world, and yet we're being sent. I am sending you, Jesus said, into the world. 
Paul, as I've already referenced, Romans 12, we spent the fall, if you remember, way back in the fall in Romans 12, do not be conformed, do not be pressed into the mold of this world, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Don't be pressed. We called it squishy last fall. Don't be squished into a mold, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. So how do we maintain this tension? All these of the world, in the world, do not be conformed, but live. You know, how do we maintain the tension that we find in Scripture? It depends on being rooted deeply in our identity in Christ. And, and from that identity, I know who I am, I know who lives within me, and I trust you, God, in your work in that. From that place, um, we, we live in this tension. And so this message is about keeping our identity as we serve the Lord in this world, not running from it, but sent into the world. And so one of the challenging questions in this tension is where are the lines? Where are the lines? Where are the boundary markers? Do not be pressed. A mold has, has lines. Where are the lines that we draw? And we need God's grace to work out this, this muddy mess of what it often looks like when we seek God's wisdom to live it out. Where are the lines? And I want to acknowledge the trickiness of this task in our nation and our society because there, there's a tension here, too. There are those who love Jesus at every level of leadership in our country, in government, in business, in military, in courts, in education, and more. It can be hard to know sometimes where's the pattern of this age, what is good and needs to be celebrated, what is neutral, it's fine, you know, every culture has neutral things that are neither good nor bad, what it, what's evil and needs to be rejected. And so while we rejoice in much that is good, even still there's there's evil to press back against. There are temptations to resist. Like every society, ours is filled with idols, with ungodliness, with deceptions. It's not the same as Daniel's Babylon, but as we've said, it is a Babylon. The Scripture defines the cultures of this world as a Babylon. And so for one example, one of the pressing questions of our age, and this sermon's not about this, but by example, the pressing questions of our age currently relates to the expression of sexuality and gender. We're surrounded by voices which champion and celebrate views that contradict and diverge with God's clear revelation in his word. What do we do? Where are the lines? How do we live with truth and love and grace? Our Father has laid the boundaries of marriage as a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. He has defined male and female clearly and consistently as this beautiful, intentional difference flowing from who God is, from the image of God. Our, biology, our biological realities and our souls in harmony. If we hold to and trust the Scripture in our day, we risk being accused or labeled as discriminatory, as hateful, even if we do so with gentleness, with love, with respect, with laying down our lives, there's a risk of being accused of being hateful. What do we do? Where are the lines? 
the Lord sends us into the world, not, uh, not to be lost in it or to be lost to it, but to bring a message of salvation, to bring hope. And so what do we do? There's kind of two sides, uh, two ways to answer that question. On one side, we have this, this, uh, this gospel transformation, and we work towards gospel transformation. This was the whole series of being outfitted that we did through this spring, that hearts and minds would be made new in Jesus Christ. And through us, his kingdom might come on earth as it is in heaven. That's one side of what we do. But at the same time, there are boundary lines that we can't cross. And so there's this exhortation, be not conformed to the world, to the pattern of this age. And so today's message about this latter idea, even though they're both important, this, this latter idea, how do we resist the pressing of the age as it shoves us into the pattern of its mold? How do we resist? That's the question. And there are examples and there are directives. I've made mention of a few throughout the scripture. And today we're following how God was shaping his people during and after the exile. Um, and we're focusing on this prophet Daniel, as I read, who lived according to his faith. This Daniel who was deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. He was, he was 15 years old or so as he's ripped out of his home and forcefully brought into Babylon and brought into the king's service. And this Babylon of the 500s BC was completely pagan, totalitarian society, filled with many gods, filled with power, uh, and controlled, excuse me, by power and fear. It was not a culture that was rooted in any way with God's uh, law or knowledge of the one true God. And yet, here's Daniel, brought into the king's service by God's sovereign hand. And as, you, as we did this five years ago, right, this book of Daniel, do you remember every, uh, all those sermons? No. <laughs> um, this, this Daniel is, by God's sovereign hand, elevated to a position of great significance and influence in this ungodly empire to an extent that's unmatched by almost any other person in the scripture with the, perhaps the exception of Joseph, Joseph over a thousand years earlier. And here's the thing. He does this while living and acting and reigning with the authority that he's given with his identity in God. He doesn't lose sight of who he is. He doesn't lose sight of his forever home. And so this morning, we're going to look at kind of a flyby through Daniel, three quick case studies each of, us show, each of them showing us an example for, of how to live without being conformed. And though there are different circumstances in view, in each of the studies, there is a line that is drawn. Daniel or his friends are asked to cross a line, and they have to decide what they're going to do. The lines would, if crossed, step into this dead-end path that would lead them away from the Lord. And so they have to decide, am I going to cross this line? And so as, as we ask ourselves, where is the line in our day? I, my prayer is that Daniel helps us to apply this enduring truth of God's word to our faithful decisions and the grounding of our identity in Christ. So the first line is in what I read in Daniel chapter 1, where Daniel is pressed to compromise. 
Daniel is pressed to compromise. The first chapter sets the con. If you could go one slide back, that'd be great. Thanks. The, the first chapter sets the context of the book. Um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm, I'm missing one. One's there that's not there. I apologize. So he, they're recognized, these young men are recognized as having great promise and aptitude, and so they're brought into this service to be trained in the Babylonian language and literature so they might ultimately serve as an advisor for the king. It's a kind of university setting, as verse 4 and 5 explains, a three-year regimen of study and training. And near the beginning of this time, he encounters, they all, the four of them encounter a line that they decide not to cross. And it, interestingly, it doesn't have to do with studying the Babylonian language and literature, though I'm sure it's filled with all sorts of ideas that are contrary to God's word. And it doesn't even have to do with being renamed. It has to do, as we see in verse 8, with the food and the wine from the king's table. Daniel resolved, he purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked permission from the chief official not to do so. So the question is, if we're thinking about compromise, what's the big deal about the food here? It sounds pretty tasty. It's from the king's table. What's the big deal? He asked for permission to, catch that word, to defile himself. The word has to do with a polluting it has to do with a staining. And we're not told explicitly why this food would be polluting or staining. It may have to do with the ritual purity laws. Certainly some of the food was off limits. It was unclean for a Jewish young man. But not all of it. The wine wasn't unclean. Not all of it. It may have to do with the fact that this food was likely dedicated to the temples of the Babylonian gods. We're not told why. So what's the big deal? Sinclair Ferguson writes, and this quote has struck me as powerful, and I used it five years ago, so if you remember, I apologize. <laughs> Somebody in Nebuchadnezzar's palace, do we have this slide? Somebody in Nebuchadnezzar's palace knew enough about the human heart to see that most men have their price. And that good times, comfort, self-esteem, and a position in society are usually a sufficient bid for a soul. A bid for a soul. That's the language of compromise. And when someone is making a bid for your soul, that's not the time to compromise. I'm usually drawn toward compromises. I don't like a fight when it's not necessary. When we're talking about interpersonal relationships, I like to mediate. But there are times when to compromise is unfaithfulness. We don't compromise truth. Daniel discerned in this offer that there was a bid for his soul compromising his identity as God's servant. He couldn't join the crowd in this. Maybe it was many things and, and, and all put together. It just raised a red flag in his heart. And he said, no, this is a line I can't cross. It was a step too far. And so the four of them drew a line. 
we will not be pressed into the mold. It was a matter of conscience. It was a matter of holy conscience and devotion and love for the Lord. A matter of staying faithful and true for them. How are we going to stay faithful and true to the God who has called us and who knows us? Even in, this, even in exile. Even in a pagan court. The food had something to do with it for them. They would be faithful, unwilling to compromise their identity. And so what does it look like in our day? Being pressed to compromise. Unlike the two other lines that we'll look at in a second, this one isn't based in a clear command. This is a matter of discernment and wisdom and spirit-led conscience. We have freedom in the Lord. Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 8-10 through 10, and in Romans 14 and 15, not everything, even with our freedom, not everything is beneficial or constructive to ourselves or to others. There are times when we are entering into a situation and the Spirit provokes and prompts us, no, that's a step too far. That is a compromise for my identity in Christ and I have to draw the line. We need to consider a message, the message about God that our actions send. We need to consider our own hearts and our own tendency towards compromise. What are the ways that our our society makes a bid for our soul? What are ways that our culture seeks for us to compromise? We have, we have to consider the, all the stuff we feel pressured to buy and then to keep in our homes ad infinitum. We, we have to consider the messages coming across our hearts and minds on those little screens all day long, even lying in bed as all the lights are out and we're just swiping, 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 the images, the, 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 the uh, rabbit hole of YouTube or the internet or whatever, what message is that sending? What compromise is being made? Nobody can answer this but you. It, this is a matter of spirit-filled conscience. We have to, parents have to consider the line of compromise for our kids' activities. What is too much? My kids are involved in a lot. There's a line there somewhere, and we're seeking God's face. What is too much? Lord, show me. Give us wisdom. What is too, what's a compromise to our, our soul, to our identity in the Lord? We have to consider what we condone with our language and our presence and where we are. What is a compromise? Are we gaining the whole world and yet losing our souls? As Jesus has said. There isn't a law here that Daniel is following specifically. It's wisdom to know there, there are those and there are forces not of flesh and blood that are seeking to influence what we speak, how we act, what we believe. And so those who resist the mold are willing to say, no, I'm drawing a line. I'm willing to stand out. I'm willing to sacrifice something that others are doing. I, I place a higher value on my identity as a child of God and as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so when I'm being pressed to compromise, I have the courage to say, no, I, that's a line too far. And that's, that's Daniel's example for us. It's taken up again in the New Testament. In Daniel 3, there's, a, there's another line in play, a different line. A different exhortation to faithfulness. Daniel 3 is about being pressed to give false worship. 
A few years after this, Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember the story, and I encourage you to read Daniel 3 and 6, where we'll be today, uh, uh, he sets up this 90-foot golden statue, and he gathers all the various leaders of Babylon to come for its dedication. And the scene is filled with pomp and circumstance, and the music is heavy, and the regality and the power of the emotion and the manipulation is there, and it combines with a direct command with, of, of someone who has power to take their life, You must fall down and worship this image of gold. And whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Do we have this next slide? The false worship. Press to give false worship. This is a gripping story. And I encourage you to read it in the whole if you haven't done so recently. Daniel's friends take the center stage here. They've already decided not to compromise their identity with the food. And now they're being pressed to worship that which isn't God. They're being pressed to give ultimate allegiance to that which doesn't deserve ultimate allegiance. And they are in the service of the king. And they're they're being pressed to worship. I think of my own heart here. And I wonder, how easy would it be? Well, I'm going to stand up on the inside and bow on the outside. You know, it's it's just one meal. Who's going to see? I don't have to believe. I'm just going to bow. I'm just going to go along. Especially in the environment of threat and fear. But the courage of these men to draw the line. We want you to know your majesty. Despite your threats. Despite the impending death that is likely coming our way. Despite all the pressure of society around us. We will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. We're drawing a hard line here. We will not serve or worship false gods. They were, they were refusing to disobey a direct command in this case. The first two commandments. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And you shall not make an image of anything and, and bow down and, and worship it. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to lay their lives down in order to obey this word. The question for us, as we are seeking to be um, sent into this world with the gospel transformation, with courage, is what are we being asked to give ultimate allegiance to? To whom? To what are we being asked to give ultimate allegiance? Where are we being pressed to false worship? Where are we being pressed to serve things or people that are not God? Are we being demanded to speak something that is simply not true? Are we being, um, not being conformed to the pattern of the age means we draw a firm line. No, I will worship only God. I will speak truth. I will worship only God. And in our time and place, this pressure usually is not expressed religiously, as in like an actual image that we have to actually bow down and worship. And so the deception is subtle, but it's real. No, we will not worship the fleeting affirmation of being right in the world's eyes or part of the group in the world's eyes. No, we will not worship messages of beauty and success that come at us from every angle. This is beauty. This is success. 
We will not worship grandiose or salvation-like ideals or language in the political dialogue, and certainly not any men or women who speak these things. We will not worship. We will not worship the relentless demands of work. What is clamoring for your absolute full allegiance? Pressing you to worship. That we have to draw a line and say, God, by grace, help me. Give me courage. Give me strength to see and and to not step over that line. Because idol worship is alive and well. And so may we be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we would, with clarity, be able to see when we are being pressed to worship, when there's an idol being lifted up before us, and may we have courage to not cross that line. Daniel, Daniel's already given us two examples from his own life, pressed to compromise, pressed to give false worship. And, and the last one in chapter 6 is, is almost the inverse of what we just saw. It's pressed to stop worship. Pressed to stop worship. Instead of being pressed to worship a false god, here there's pressure to conform by stopping expressions of love and devotion to the one true God. Daniel 6, which you'll again have to read on your own, uh, another king. This is like 50 years later. King Darius. The Persians are coming in. He's assigned a, uh, Cyrus has assigned someone else to rule over the kingdom for a short time. It's a man named Darius. This is in 539 BC. Daniel has served faithfully for decades. And Darius makes an edict that says anyone who prays to an, any god or human being during the next 30 days except to Darius, shall be thrown into the den of lions. You likely remember the story. His advisors had, had tricked him in a sense. They had swayed him to make, the, make this decree. Why? For the express purpose of catching Daniel disobeying it. Think about Daniel's reputation. He was already a man of conscience and courage and conviction. And they knew, we're not going to catch Daniel uh, in doing anything wrong, anything breaking his integrity. So we have to catch him in his worship. And so they, they cause Darius to make this law to catch Daniel breaking it. The pattern of this age presses us to stop doing something that God expressly commands. But no law can, can press you to don't trust in the Lord. Don't... don't uh, don't have the joy of the Lord. Don't love others in, in your heart. There, there's no law that can stop that, right? Our, our trust in the Lord. So what does, what does a law or pressure go after? Things uh, more public. We'll encounter laws, opinions, rules, company rules, subtle pressure that seek to limit our free expression of faith. Corporate worship, prayer, Language, the language, the name of Jesus Christ, evangelism, gatherings of all types. And Daniel 6.10 says this. I want you to see what is Daniel's response to this edict that he knows is meant to get him. When Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Open windows. He's not hiding. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. He made a point to continue the pattern of prayer 
that was, um, that was a um, recognition of the people of God. He would not be pressed to comply with laws that contradicted God's law. He would not be pressed to comply with a law that said, you cannot pray. You cannot worship. You cannot gather. And so, most of the time, we demonstrate our love of God by obeying the law, by obeying the law of government, by obeying other rules. But there are laws which must be disobeyed. Daniel knew he couldn't stop praying just because of an edict from the king. Just like Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, do you remember when the Sanhedrin commanded them, you may not speak in the name of Jesus any longer. And what did they say? Which is right? Uh, we want to we honor you, but which is right here? To, to, um, to listen to you or to listen to God? Which is better for us? In chapter 5, they were brought again before the Sanhedrin on the same charges, and they said, we must obey God rather than human beings. The powers of this age, which are not ultimately flesh and blood, but the schemes and the powers of Satan, they, they can't legislate our hearts, as I said before. So sometimes there are laws, there are rules, there are forces that say you may not worship in, in public forms. And when we encounter forces that aim to limit freedom of worship or our ability to obey what God has explicitly told us to do, we have to draw a line. And in this, we may have to accept the consequences. Daniel, as he went to the lion's den, as the three friends went to the furnace, we may have to be fired. We may have to receive baseless accusation. We may have to be, um, have social isolation. Or worse, right? There, there may come a time where I could be fined or jailed by holding fast to the truth about marriage and sexuality. I would have to accept those consequences. Daniel went to the lion's den. Paul and Silas went to prison. Jesus went to the cross. Which of them did any wrong for their punishment? They suffered for what was right. And so we may or may not be rescued in this life. The book of Daniel is a book of dramatic deliverance and rescue, but we know that we quite possibly will not be rescued dramatically in the same way. But we know that the life of faith is victorious in weakness and in death. Hebrews 11, uh, when it's this hall of faith and this, this testimony to the great saints of old, ends saying of those who suffered for faithfulness, the world was not worthy of them. The world was not worthy of them because they continued in their devotion to the Lord no matter what. And so the point of speaking of these lines is preparation for us individually and corporately. We prepare our lives now by the renewing of our minds and the dedication of our hearts and the strengthening of our faith. We will not be pressed into the pattern of this age. It's going to take wisdom and discernment and, and grace as we navigate forward, but we will not be pressed to the pattern of this age. We cling to the grace of God through Jesus Christ, who came full of love and truth, and he sends us full of love and truth, both and. And so when the way becomes difficult or unclear, when we are um, seeking not to conform 
when we are pressed back against, may we know with, with, with no doubt in our minds, at that time when we have to draw the line, may we know God's whisper, God's uh, deep love for us when he says, I am with you. I am still here. I was with them in the fire. I'm with them as they pass through the waters. I am with you. I am with you. I am still here as you're with courage drawing the line. And so, Father, you are mighty to save. You are enduring. Your people are through the generations. You are before all time. You are forever. And in you, it's amazing, it blows our minds, but in you, we are forever. In your presence, Lord, give us a vision of that that would just pale any any hard decision we need to make in the here and now. Lord, give us a vision of face-to-face with our Lord Jesus Christ who loves us and died for us. Lord, you are mighty to save, and so strengthen our faith, strengthen our hope, strengthen our resolve that we would not be pressed to compromise. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Give us grace to proclaim this good news to the world of salvation and new life. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God be the glory. We come to this table as a reminder of the cross of Jesus Christ. We come to this table as a reminder that it's not by our strength, that in that day of challenge, it won't fall only on us, but that God is with us. He has given his life and he's filled us with his spirit and he is with us.